Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners may find the ideas and content expressed disturbing or objectionable. Hello, everybody. This is uh, Todd Fredericks, Assistant Professor of Family Medicine at the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. And of course, I'm again with my, uh, my uh, he's my colleague. He's a medical student, but he's one of the smartest ones I know. And he's, and he's <laughs> he doesn't know many medical students. <laughs> I know every medical student. And you know what? They, 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 all of them challenge me in certain ways. But our host, Ms. Sarg Bakshi, who's about to continue with um, Karen Bailey. Yeah, welcome to another episode of Rotations. Um, we're here with Karen Bailey, our registered and licensed dietitian, certified diabetes educator. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about um, diabetes education, her work as a dietitian, and what med students can learn from all of that. So thanks again for joining us. Thank you. And this week, I will not forget to introduce Dr. Beverly, who, is, uh, <laughs> who generously gave her time to us. Um, even though we gave her no warning, we just kind of asked her to come, and she joined us. So thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, so last week, we, we were talking a little bit about um, food sources and food insecurity and um, how that relates to people with either conditions or people that just don't have the means to get, uh, you know, their next meal. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about your work as a diabetes educator? You know, we were talking about this off mic as well. Um, what sorts of things do you do that helps patients? You know, what, what sorts of improvements have you encouraged patients to make in their diet, their exercise, mm-hmm. lifestyle, whatever it may be? Well, the diabetes education um, program is pretty comprehensive. So it, it, it it does uh, help people understand their diet, but that's just one small part of it. It also helps people understand what their medications do, how their medications act, um, when they should be taking their medications. Um, we also talk about uh, you know, exercise and the impact on blood sugars. Uh, we help them learn to problem solve. So if my blood sugar at night before I go to bed is high, what are some of the reasons why that might be? So troubleshoot, teaching people to troubleshoot is very empowering. And they really don't, a lot of times they don't think about the fact that they could figure some things out. Uh, and that's the, the fun part for me is uh, having them, you know, bring their download, you know, meter download, and we kind of look at it and troubleshoot. So if you're high at nighttime, what are some of the reasons? So we really teach them what makes my blood sugar go up, what makes it go down, how, and, and what can I do to have impacts on those blood sugars? Um, and then also, they may not know that they can take their insulin with them to the restaurant. They may think they're supposed to keep it in the refrigerator. So for years and years, when they go to lunch at work, they don't have their insulin with them because they thought it has to stay in the refrigerator. And so their A1C is always high. Their blood sugars before dinner are always high. And nobody's actually told them, do you take your insulin at lunchtime? Why not? So there's a lot of... Uh, the devil's in the details, a lot about the details of day-to-day living with diabetes management that's really important to cover and really helps uh, patients um, feel empowered and improve their uh, blood sugar uh, levels and their control. A doctor doesn't have time to do that in 15 or 20 right. minutes. They just don't. So the diabetes education is real important, and unfortunately, patients um, think it's optional. So the doctor might say, well, um, I think it'd be great if you saw a diabetes educator. Well, doc, you know, I have transportation issues, so I'm not going to be able to do that. Or they might say, sure, you know, and you refer them, and then they never go. So one of the things I tell the docs in my clinic is follow up with the, with the patients and see, did you, did you go to the educator? Did you do your, um, go to the diabetes educator? That's part of your treatment. It's just as important as your medication. You really need that. I expect that you're going to go. 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, and we try to make it work, you know. Yeah. Something needs to be brought up about clinical practice too, Karen, and that mm-hmm. is, and I think some doctors are, are unaware of this, but it's a real thing for some patients. Patients don't like to disappoint their physicians. Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> there's a power and a magic to the white coat. And when you walk in there and they see a white coat there, they're thinking, I, won't, I don't want the doctor to be mad at me. I don't want him to say something unkind to me. I don't want them to, to badger me. Um, there's all sorts of reasons, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes being able to go sit down with a nurse or a dietitian in a less confrontational environment is a really good thing for the patient because their guard goes down. They're not worried about making a mistake as much as they would be with their physician. And that can be what we would call in the military a force multiplier for the physician in that that suddenly you have the leverage of another individual in a different context. Um, and I'll be honest with you, I'm going to probably get flack about this, but I respect the genders for the strengths that they bring to the table. I know as a physician, I like having a, a female doctor. She speaks in a different tone of voice. She has a different approach because of who she is, and she's a female. I just respond to that better in some ways, um, and I appreciate the care she gives to me. And so mm-hmm. I think for a lot of people, that can really make a difference. If you're struggling as a physician to try to get them hooked up and get them to be compliant, having them talk to a different person, maybe a person who's softer spoken perhaps, that's well-educated and well-trained, might make a big difference in terms of their compliance, I I think. I don't know if anybody studied that, but I'd be curious to see what the compliance is with diabetes care, and maybe you guys know this, for physician-only management versus physician combined with diabetes educator. Well, we we do outcomes every year on the diabetes Mm -hmm. Um, education program and the the participants that finish the program their a1c always comes down by over a point so it's a one point something over the years so they they usually are able to lose weight if they need to lose weight during the course of the program mm-hmm. um, so we know the education really works uh, it, when someone is plugged into a program usually they show improvement yeah. the problem is when the program's over the slip sliding starts so that is, I see, as a real important part of um, emerging healthcare is really being out there in the community where people are and continuing to reinforce what they've learned through support groups and programs, community programs. And we're real interested in the Diabetes Institute in doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've been really, really lucky in the Diabetes Institute because they've got grant money um, so that we can do programs for people for free. Um, in the community where they are and continue keeping them kind of plugged in, plugged so Todd, into their care. To answer your question, so in terms of the research world, mm-hmm. um, if you were to compare physician-only care for patients with diabetes as to those who have physicians who've revered out patients who've received diabetes education, the patients who've received diabetes education, so it's usual care, which is just physician, is usual care plus diabetes education, by and large, those who've received the diabetes education do much, much better in terms of all outcomes. Mm -hmm. And then the best type of diabetes education is one that includes behavioral and cognitive behavioral. So that's including some form of cognitive behavioral techniques. So when when Karen was talking about problem solving Mm -hmm. and ways to cope, so if you can teach problem solving techniques, so troubleshooting, Mm -hmm. so that the patient, if they're forced with some kind of stressful environment or a difficult situation, mm-hmm. they don't panic and then just give up. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, they can, you know, troubleshoot it and solve it. Or if they're given a stressful situation, they learn how to cope with it. Mm-hmm. So, Liz, this is really interesting because 
last year, of course, at OU, every year the first years get to go to the nursing home, and they get to have an experience uh, outside of the nursing home. We went into a nursing home patient who had some friends there, mm -hmm. and their friends were morbidly obese, and we got to talking about them, and it came out that one of their family members had diabetes, and they'd just been in the hospital, had an amputation, and one of the friends said, yeah, I've got it too. And so one of the students thoughtfully said, well, what are you doing to take care of it? And she goes, I don't do much with it. She goes, it's kind of what happens in my family. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I don't think that's uncommon. I think that they come in, the doctor looks at them, sees their hemoglobin A1C is 12 and says, you need to be doing this, you need to be doing that, you need to be doing that. And they go home and they go right back and say, it's a fatalism of, yeah. mm -hmm. well, everybody in my family has diabetes. I'm just going to get it. I'll probably lose a leg at 50. And, you know, that's just how life is. And it doesn't have to be that way. And mm -hmm. so along those lines, that is something that is not unique, but it's related to the culture of rural Appalachia in this region. Mm -hmm. And you know, and as well as Karen, that there was a study that I did here. There's a needs assessment that, out of the Diabetes Institute where I interviewed providers and all providers going from EMTs all the way to physicians. Um, so I included dietitians, certified diabetes educators, physicians, specialists about taking care of diabetes in this region and how has diabetes changed over the years. And one of the things I wanted to know is what are the biggest barriers, and fatalism was one of the biggest barriers. Yeah, and I wonder how many physicians really embrace that and understand that as part of their practice. Deal, and that's a cognitive issue. That is a yeah. cognitive behavioral issue mm -hmm, that needs mm -hmm. change and counseling so that people understand that they don't have to accept that as an outcome. Mm -hmm, right. Uh, yeah, that's really critical. I'm not sure, and granted, this was just a descriptive study where I'm collecting data to address the, you know, to um, identify these barriers. And so what we're going to do for the next step is, okay, let's implement some studies so we can kind of address these barriers through intervention. So I wasn't trying to, you know, see who can fix this right here. But uh, no, I get it. It's basic research. Right, from the, from I, the, I track it. From yeah. the providers, no one has figured this out, how to address the fatalism in this region. So, that, so for young medical students who want to mm -hmm. have a line of research, yeah, right? I mean, there's, there it is right there. Start looking at fatalism as a, as a cause of, or as, all, as, a, as a foundation for all-cause morbidity, especially concerning, mm -hmm. you know, diabetes. You yeah. could do a nice yeah. poster on that, I think. But, and, and it's not just a rural Appalachia. I mean, I'm no, sure right. it's, it's really prevalent mm -hmm. here, but I mean, my family has a history of diabetes. And, you know, mm -hmm. every, everyone's like, oh, yeah, you're just going to get it. Like, mm -hmm. you don't have to, mm -hmm. you know, and right. I think that's pretty uh, common. I wanted to add something to what Karen said that was mm -hmm. really, really important. Mm -hmm. um, so along the lines of... What we were talking about was developing the diabetes, and in terms of the education, where you having diabetes education, you were going to be much more successful in your management, and then having the cognitive behavioral education. What you mentioned is reinforcement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, what in terms of insurance companies covering diabetes education, it's not always covered, and Ohio is not one of the best states in terms of coverage. Mm -hmm. Okay, but with insurance companies covering diabetes education. Uh, once you receive a certain number of hours, they think you're set for life. But you need the reinforcement of diabetes education because one thing we know is that guidelines change over time. Mm -hmm. Exercise guidelines, nutrition guidelines, for sure. Behavior changes over time. And we also forget things over time, correct? Mm -hmm. So it has to be reinforcement of education. I was fortunate to be a part of a study when I was in Boston where we studied reinforcement of diabetes education, and we were able to show that if you can reinforce education several years after participating in education, you can improve those outcomes again. So does that look kind of like a 12-step program for an alcoholic where you have these sort of, you know, not that it's, I don't want to correlate an addiction right. with diabetes, but in some cases it seems somewhat similar in that you have a person that you say, look, this is a lifetime thing. Periodically, you're going to need a reinfusion of principles. And so this is how we do that. 
to remind you, to keep you on track, or to encourage you in terms of because I mean, it yeah. does stink. You can't go in and buy an almond joy, right? I mean, well, you just you just can't you can't go out and. Well, knock you could. Out. I mean, it's moderation, right? Sure. So that's we were talking to a dietitian. What I would <laughs> what I would say, the analogy I would use is since we're talking to med students here, right? Um, you guys will be taking a lot of board exams, and as future physicians, you have to take retake boards multiple times, mm-hmm. right? And it's kind of like a refresher course. You have to all of a sudden go open the books again, and study a bunch of things that maybe you don't always use in practice all the time. So it would be like that, taking a refresher course, studying up on things, making sure that you're, you've covered all the bases, and you're up to date with new guidelines. And I would say it's somewhat similar to that with diabetes. Right. And the, the problem is, is that, so when I, when I have patients and they finish the diabetes education program, I'll say, um, our last session is all about what are you going to do to stay plugged in? What is your diabetes long-term support plan? So a diabetes mm-hmm. education program, where a recognized accredited program has to have a discussion with participants on what are you planning to do to stay plugged in? What's your long-term support plan? So we have diabetes support group, for example, that can be it. They have to check it off. They have to acknowledge during the visit what they're going to do. There's online magazines. There's websites. There's Weight Watchers. There's this program or that program. And then you could also come back and see a diabetes educator. And you, your insurance <laughs> will probably pay for one or two visits a year to come back and see an educator. But people won't do that. They don't do that. I understand that. I could, I, it would benefit me to go to my financial planner once a year and have discussions with him about my long-term retirement and all that stuff. And I always find reasons not to show up at the appointment. I, under, I get that. So what I understand is the education has to be not in an office setting where they come to me and get re, you know, reminded what they're supposed to do. I got to be where they are. Mm-hmm. So right. you know, community education needs to be in the community. Long-term support needs to be where they are. And that's why the, you know, the apps and the websites and the programs that they have now, they're great because they are. People can um, listen where they are instead of going into an appointment. So we, as far as looking to the future, we need to find ways of paying for programs that are in the community, in the community centers, in the senior centers, um, re- reaching people in their homes, whether it's on TV or, or you know on their phone or or whatever. Um, but that's what that's what's really needed mm-hmm. to keep people kind of plugged into their care. So one other thing we mentioned last week, and then Dr. Beverly mentioned this um, regarding food insecurity in Ohio, mm-hmm. um, was the statistic of one in six individuals and one in four children um, don't know where their meals are coming from. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? I know we kind of cut off the discussion uh, a little bit uh, briefly. So can you talk a little bit more about, you know, some potential causes and uh, ways to mitigate that potentially? Sure. The context of the conversation last week is we were talking about food insecurity and we we're also talking about benefits. And we brought up the conversation of, you know, in the past, a lot of families would grow their own food and that was a source of, you know, sustainability for food and why is it that we don't see as many families growing their own food and having their own gardens and that was the question that Dr. Federicks posed you know to the group and from what I've heard anecdotally um, from individuals in the region here um, I've heard from families that why grow food that my children won't eat I'd Hmm. rather spend it on foods that I know my kids will eat Hmm. and I have a two-year-old <laughs> <laughs> who is very, very picky. Three dietary mm-hmm. options in his life. 
Yeah, and and I can to some degree understand that. Now, I also know that if you read enough books about kids, you have to introduce a food at least 10 times to maybe get them to eventually try it. Okay, and so I do that, and it'll mm. always be on the plate, and he still won't pick it up, but it's there. Um, but I'm also very fortunate, okay? So I can't necessarily put myself in that position where um, I don't have that luxury of constantly putting that piece of food on the plate where I can waste it or mm. I can eat it myself. Um, so that is one of the things. It's also certain some of those foods that you are, that we're talking fresh produce, mm-hmm. okay, that does go bad. Mm-hmm. more quickly. Whereas if you're buying mm-hmm. these box food items that you can have, you can have that for a really long time. And then for a lot of these individuals here, we are talking extreme poverty. We're talking poverty conditions that for the individuals listening here can't even fathom. Mm-hmm. Things that I never knew imaginable till I moved to this region. And I mean, it, it, it really are, these are situations that I did not know existed in this country. Um, that is what individuals in southeastern Ohio are living in. And some of these individuals do not have places to live. They are living in tents, mm-hmm. in communities that we mm-hmm. cannot see. Or in their car. That's in right. their car. Mm-hmm. And you can't grow mm-hmm. food necessarily. And, I and, and Liz, I don't think that's necessarily just Appalachia. I think no, it's no. urban areas. I think it's mm-hmm. a lot of places where there's displaced people. And it, I know it's a multifactorial issue, and people right. necessarily want to go there, but there's social structure issues, mm-hmm. there's the loss and decay of family structure, of of generational learning, mm-hmm. of grandma teaches mom who teaches child. There's mm-hmm. a lot of factors that go into this. and But it seems like what Karen's talking about, a community-based initiative, mm-hmm. it's reflective of something we found in behavioral health. <clears throat> One thing that community-based outreach does is it detaches the stigma of a medical problem back into a life problem. That you know, I'm not here. I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I tell you, people walk in the hospital, it's because they're going to die, right? And they go into a clinic and they think, I'm really sick, I'm going to die, as opposed to being in a community center where there's a diabetic educator, a nurse, di- diabetic educator, a dietitian, and they say, let's talk about management of your diabetes. And it's in a bright, airy place that doesn't look like I'm going to die, right? There's probably something going on there psychologically that allows people to accept that education in a way that it's not as terrifying as if they get it in a clinical setting. Because I know when I walk into a hospital, the only thing I'm thinking of is how, how soon can I get out? Mm-hmm. It just sure. seems, because a lot mm-hmm. of things, and it's true, a lot of bad things in, in people's lives happen in hospitals. They go to mm-hmm. see grandma who's dying or they see someone who's really sick. It's an association that's hard to break. And so I like the idea of, of the, the community-based idea. It works for behavioral health too. When you take mm-hmm. behavioral health services, not... Critical. I'm suicidal, but I'm really having a bit of a crisis, and you displace it from an emergency room in a different place. It's easier for those people to communicate and talk to a social worker, talk to a clinical psychologist, because it's not as intimidating. Mm-hmm. It, it, they don't associate it with sickness and illness. Mm-hmm. I don't have all the answers on that, but I think it's interesting that you guys have found that works in the community. It seems intuitive to me. Mm-hmm. And lay people like community health workers can be really, really powerful. For example. The program Diabetes Community Partners has been wonderful. Mm-hmm. I, I wish that we could grow it a little bit, but it's really hard to get people engaged and be willing to accept these people that they don't know. But uh, the com- Diabetes Communities Partners, Diabetes Community Partners, are a small group of people that graduate from diabetes education classes, and they're volunteering to be mentors to other people with diabetes. Um, and we usually will refer them to the Diabetes Community Partners. Liz is one of the coordinators of that program. 
um, we will refer a person to that program who's really struggling with some aspect of their diabetes. They're not, you know, they need some support, maybe someone to talk to even. And so one of her participants will call them and it might just be a telephone call every once in a while, or they might meet at a Wendy's and discuss. Uh, but I have, you know, one patient that has some, you know, struggles, some issues with his diabetes care, and, and I've seen him for probably over two years, and he's been through all my classes, and one of our diabetes community partners has does, done wonders with him. He meets him every single week at 6 o'clock at a Wendy's, and that participant brings in his blood sugars and brings in his food logs. He this never is did. Like, this is totally like AA. This is like the AA sponsor <laughs> yeah. showing up and you've got a mentor and all that. This is really good. And this is just a guy yeah. who, you know, volunteer. And, he, and he's really, really helped. So it doesn't have to be a PhD, an MD, a DO, a RD that has the most impact on a person. It's just someone who cares mm-hmm. in the community where they are, right. not in a clinic setting. So I really, I really see a huge impact if, if we can find payers mm-hmm. um, that'll pay for programs for dietitians and um, you know community programs like this to keep people plugged in. And another thing I wanted to say about the fatalism attitude that people have, you can change a mindset just by talking about it. So for example, one of the things we tell people with type 2 diabetes is um, as far as the causality of it, there's a genetic link, but then there's also an environmental trigger. You have a lot of influence on those environmental triggers. They're just decisions you have to make every day in your life regarding food and exercise. Do what you can. And it's amazing um, the progress that you can make. So when you start having to, you know, really talking to people in that way, they're going to be less fatalistic. I just don't think that they've heard that conversation very often. Yeah, I think this sounds like right, Brown. You know, you kids are going to – I see you kids. I'm sorry to start. What are you now, 55, 52? <laughs> how old are you? Feels like it. <laughs> are, are you how old are you now? I'm 24. So so if you're, relatively speaking, the people on this table, you're a kid. But, but you're a smart kid. And so I just think as you guys go out in third and fourth year and into your early practices, looking at the community you're in and trying to identify, you know, you've got resources here that you can say, I'd like to implement a peer support program in my community. It seems like a very simple thing that a person can get involved with. And mm-hmm. I always go back to you know healthdata.org and the top five reasons for years of life lost in this country. And you take care of diabetes, you reduce all-cause morbidity and mortality. You prevent renal transplants. You prevent amputations. You prevent blindness. You prevent... I mean, there's so many things that are critically oriented around this disease. And if it takes something as simple as, hey, I'm going to get you a peer that you can meet with, have a cup of coffee at Wendy's every every Tuesday, and just mm-hmm. say, I'm struggling with my diet. How do you deal with this? I mean, what a what a great thing, you know? And, and it's a, community and a service. Peer, a peer is so much more powerful than an expert, oh, for sure. right? right? Because this is somebody else is doing the same thing, and they mm-hmm. figured out a strategy. If they can do it, I can do it. What's mm-hmm. PhD so, stand for? Mm-hmm. Piled higher and deeper, right? Right, <laughs> right. So that, that, well, do I haven't figured out what that is, but I'm sure that's right up there, right? I mean, a peer is a peer, right? It's mm-hmm. someone you can relate to, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. versus the person yeah. who looks like a rocket scientist. That's you know, you want me Somebody to somebody sitting next to you instead of sitting across the table from you. Right, it makes all the difference in the world. I think so. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. We good. Yeah, I think so. I'm going to have some ice cream tonight and not feel guilty. <laughs> there you go. Karen, thank you so much. Thank it's you. It's all about portion. <laughs> yeah. Folks, thank I didn't you. tell you how much I'm going to have. Thank you for joining us. And we'll, thank uh, you. Yeah, we'll, we'll hit you up the next time. Appreciate you.
Rotations is the weekly podcast of all things medicine and science and is part of the Media and Medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on Rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communications. Guests on Rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so that their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. Rotations is hosted by Nisark Bakshi, produced by Todd Fredericks, audio engineered by Kyle Snyder, and edited by Brian Plow. Rotations is co-hosted by a League of Champions of all things medical and a few people we pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve all rights to content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators, and you must cite Rotations as the source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by emailing us at rotationspodcast at gmail.com, tweeting us at rotationspcast, or by visiting mediaandmedicine.com slash rotations. Mm-hmm.